Today, we're going to continue with the series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel Series. Just in case you don't think we're making progress, we're moving to element five of the eight today. Uh, Jesus Christ, the solution. Uh, today, uh, chapter element five will be an introduction to the theological subject, subject called Christology, which is just the study of the doctrines of Christ. And so um, traditionally, you start with studying Jesus as uh, the eternal, be, only begotten Son of God, the divinity of Christ. I'm going to go about it a little different since we have a lot of theology students and we've covered, we've taught on that many times over the years. And so uh, I'm going to kind of bounce around in a little bit of a random order and maybe paint more of a mosaic of Christ uh, over the next. I don't know how many weeks I'm going to stay on element five because, you know, I could stay on it for a year or two, but I think I'll try to limit it to no more than 10 and uh, hopefully more like five or seven weeks. This is actually the 20th uh, lesson in the series. So we got through the introduction, which was three weeks, and the first four elements in a mere 20, uh, week, or 20 weeks. This is the 21st week, so we've had 20 weeks. So Roman numeral two tells you, uh, Roman numeral one tells you the uh, eight elements. Roman numeral two in your outline tells you uh, what we covered in the first 20 messages. And what we really want to uh, focus on in the first 20 messages is we want to focus, focus on the concept that the gap between Christ, between God and us, is much bigger than you think. Since we have Ray Nethery here today, we'll, uh, we'll uh, quote one of his favorite quotes. He says, cheer up, it's much worse than, you're much worse off than you think, <laughs> and uh, something like that, right? And uh, so uh, almost all uh, simplistic gospel presentations that try to reduce things to a booklet or, or uh, four laws or five laws or whatever, uh, paint a gap between who God is and who, where we are and the essence of philosophy, the essence of self-help, the essence of all other religions is that you can bridge that gap by your efforts. And the essence of Christianity is that God came and bridged the gap for you, and that's the only way the gap can be bridged. Um, it, it's very uh, clear that over the last 150 years or so in uh, modern biblical Christianity, that gap has been minimized. And uh, if we are going to restore the gospel, we've got to see the gap uh, for hopelessly big uh, from man's point of view. Uh, for instance, when we talk about the second element, the doctrines of man, after we cover how God, man is made in God's image and man is made for a noble or eternal purpose, we cover uh, that man's, the image of God has been marred in man by a doctrine called sin. And we bring out that you have three enemies, all of which are insurmountable in and of yourself. Uh, the world system, your sin nature, and the Satan and his demons who are real. And you cannot bridge that gap by your own efforts. Uh, if you set out to have your best life now or whatever, you will fall off the gap, <laughs> fall off the cliff. And uh, you have to actually lose your life so that he can give you a new life to, cover, to 
go against go across the gap. So today we're going to start looking in Roman numeral three at element five, bridging the gap. Jesus, the uh, uh, we're going to talk about the eternal covenant in these next few weeks. Hebrews thirteen twenty talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. If you didn't hear John's message last week, I'd highly recommend that you hear it because he talked about the eternal covenant. And uh, so uh, as we uh, look at this, we want to see that Jesus is the only solution. He's the only bridge. He's the only mediator. And we want to see that from various studies of various aspects of Jesus. Now, in Matthew 16, if you, uh, it, well, you'd do well to go back to our podcast and listen to my uh, two, uh, part, two parts that I did on, the, on Matthew's use of mountains. But when, Matthew, when Ma- Jesus takes the disciples to the mountain of Caesarea Philippi, at, at the base of the mountain where Herod had his palace on purpose, because he's trying to make the statement that Herod is not the king, he's the king. And uh, we'll pick it up with what Jesus asked his disciples. So Jesus, when they got to Caesarea Philippi, asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now that phrase, the Son of Man, is uh, from Daniel 7, and it's one of the most common messianic titles in the Bible, and Jesus uses it regularly and often. People sometimes say today that Jesus didn't clearly identify himself as the Messiah. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus used all the messianic titles of the Old Testament regarding himself regularly and often, and this is one of his favorites, the Son of Man. So he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say, you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? The Greek words there are ego me. And he's purposely quoting Exodus 3.14, as we'll get into later today. Uh, I am that I am is the primary name of God, the most sacred and name of God in, in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures. And Jesus say, is saying, who do people say I am that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Now, all religions, all life, all ideas fall or rise on how you answer, who do you say that I am? Your entire life each day, your entire destiny, everything about you is rooted in your answer to who do you say that Jesus is. Um, I know a few of Andhvesh's friends who are from India who are Hindus, and we have some nice discussions once in a while about uh, the gospel and about Hinduism and Christianity and so forth. And uh, a couple of his friends have said, you know, I've never studied Hinduism, or I'm just nominally Hindu, and I've uh, never studied Christianity, and I think I'd like to study these things. So I usually open up to Matthew 16, and I said, well, I'd be glad to do some Bible studies with you. If we do, we're going to go through the Gospels, first of all, and we're going to look at who Jesus is. Because everything else falls or rises on who, uh, whether Jesus has been revealed to you for who he is. So today I'm going to just look at uh, uh, the Gospel of John and look at two interrelated, inextricably intertwined concepts in the Gospel of John. The Lagos, 
which is not as big a fancy word as you think. We'll talk about it. And his I am sayings. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on the Logos because it's such a complicated concept that, frankly, if if we gave that attention, it would probably be a series in itself. So I'm going to just try to, uh, I've just given you under uh, Roman numeral 4A, for those of you who like to study these kind of things, I've given you some starting points that you can Google it and look it up yourself. Um, the word logos is normally translated in the New Testament as the word. So in John 1, 1, as we'll be looking at, Enarchaean halagos and kai halagos and prostantheon, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God or toward God, and the word is or was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and so forth. So um, the lot, when John writes his gospel, he's tapping into the fact that both among Hebrew people and among all other Gentile people in the Roman Empire, the Logos was a very, very, very important philosophical concept by the time of Christ. There would be nobody you could meet on the street that wouldn't be able to discuss this concept, the Logos. So the Logos was first mentioned by uh, Homer. Many of you are familiar with Homer. He's called the Blind Bard, and he wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, and it used to be that you'd have to read those in high school uh, and so forth. And uh, that dates from about the 8th century B.C. And then at the around 600 to 580 B.C., around at the end of the uh, um 6th century or the beginning of the 6th century, uh, Greek philosophy starts to develop, and you uh, have, uh, in the late 5th century, you have the pre-Socratic philosophers, the most famous of which are Protagoras of Abdera, my favorite, because he states the greatest uh, statement of what the religion of humanism is. He says, man is the measure of all things. Uh Genesis 3, the serpent said, you will be as God yourself, deciding for yourself what's good and evil. So those are probably the two greatest concise statements of the philosophy of humanism that have ever been written. So um, one of the great pre-Socratic, meaning before Socrates, you know, we just watched Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure Friday night as our movie of the week. And as you know, they travel in history and they don't know a lot about history, so they call Socrates Socrates. <laughs> and uh, I, love, I love the scene with Socrates because, you know, he's uh, showing the, the, he's actually using one of Heraclitus's, who we're going to talk about in a second's ideas, and he's pouring sand in his hand, and they go, all we are is dust in the wind, quoting the rock band Kansas. Uh, I met a couple of the guys from Kansas, had an interesting talk with them about Christ one time. Both, uh, two of the members became Christians. So, um, not as a result of me. I talked to them after they became Christians. and uh, But we had had much to talk about because of a common concert experience we'd had together. Uh, let's not go any further with that. But uh, <laughs> um, uh, Socrates then goes on to say something like, the only thing that we know is that we know nothing. And Bill and Ted go, that's us, dudes. <laughs> and uh, hilarious. Very, very done. Well done. 
Well, before Socrates, uh, there was a philosopher named Heraclitus, and he's the first Greek philosopher to use the term the Lagos. He is most famous for his famous dictum, you can't step in the same river twice. And like, what's people, what does that mean? He's saying that all things are flux. If you step into a river and then you uh, step into it again, it's moved on. It's changed. It's not the same river it was an instant ago. And he's basically saying that all things in the material world is flux. And they, the Greeks postulated that there was this unseen eternal realm in which there was uh, perfect forms. Uh, that's a Plato concept coming up after Socrates. And that there was these perfect ideas. And the Logos is kind of the principle that created all things to be. And everything we see in this world is an abstraction from some ideal somewhere. Uh, in our, all things, because the Greeks looked at this world, the physical world, is innately evil. Uh, they basically said that all extractions uh, from this Lagos realm are necessarily twisted, broken, uh, imperfect, and corrupted. And so they would say there's this perfect concept of love. But all we know is three kinds of human love, all of which are like brotherly love, phileo, and eros, you know, erotic love or sexual love. All the loves we know are, are hopelessly corrupted. But somewhere there is this perfect ideal love, which they call agape. And uh, the New Testament borrows these terms. And in typical biblical fashion, changes them slightly to sanctify them. So um, this term came into the Greek translation of the, of the Septuagint after the time of Alexander and during the time called Panhellenism. We don't need to know a lot about that for now. But by the time uh, that Jesus appears on the scene, every person in the Greco-Roman world would know this concept, the Lagos. And uh, for the, for the worldviews that were non-theistic, uh, it was often a, some personal or not some uh, abstract uh, ideal of the perfect or the forms. And for the theistic, it was the intelligent designer, the creator of all things. Uh, and there were theistic people who weren't necessarily Hebrew, but many of the Greek philosophers actually believe there must be someone somewhere or some intelligent design somewhere and so forth. Uh, most Greek philosophers were evolutionary. Now, John, in his five books, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the Book of Revelation, picks up this concept, the Lagos, and he uses it quite a bit. Um, in the Gospel of John alone, he uses the word Lagos exactly 40 times, and that's not by accident. It has to do with the importance of the biblical number 40. John's gospel is probably one of the greatest masterpieces of literature of all time. Uh, five, you know, five is the number of grace, and there's five discourses of Jesus centered around five miracles of Jesus. And, and you know, um, G, uh, as we're going to see, Jesus constantly says, I am. So, and that is, he is purposely, uh, John is perfectly, purposely tying Jesus's statements of I am that I am into this uh, concept 
that there is a person that is the absolute starter and creator and perfection of all beauty and wisdom and truth and creation and so forth. So um, when John is writing his gospel, very much like Matthew uh, and very much like Luke did in Luke and Acts put together, he is self-consciously trying to write a new Pentateuch. All Jews understood that the foundation of everything was the historical accounts of Genesis 1 through Deuteronomy. And that was the foundation of all Hebrew thought. And they are basically saying that all Hebrew thought has culminated and come to fruition. That's why we spent five or six weeks on why every presentation of the gospel in the New Testament is loaded with Hebrew scriptures and Hebrew concepts and Hebrew ideas. Even though we don't do that today, we do that much to our loss, much to the reduction of the message of the gospel, because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Hebrew scriptures. He's the law, etc. He is Israel. Uh, he is God's precious son. He's the, the mediator of the new covenant. He's the new Moses, on and on. So um, John is uh, purposely writing kind of a new Genesis through um, Deuteronomy in his, in his gospel. And so he starts off with very similar language to Genesis 1 that says, in the beginning, which is the Greek NRK in the Septuagint, which archaic means, uh, you know, old and from the original, from the beginning. He's saying the, the initial thing of all things in, in Genesis 1, in the beginning was God. God is the ultimate reality. God is the eternal one. God is the only thing and the only one who ultimately, that existed outside and above time before time was created, before the time-space continuum was created, and he is the Lagos, the initiator of all things. So John uh, picks up on that theme by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's purposely modeling after Genesis 1.1. And uh, we'll see as he gets into verse 14, when he says the word became flesh, he's pur- purposely giving us the message of, John, of Genesis 1. I said John, he's modeling after John 1.1. 1, 1. John 1.1 1, 1 is modeled after Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. And then John 1.14 is modeled after all of Genesis 1 and 2, that God made the creation in six days, and the creation was initially very good. As we'll see, that is a radical, radical concept in the ancient world because all the philosophies of the Greco-Romans considered the the material world as evil and as inferior and as temporary at best. Now, um, what John is purposely doing like Genesis 1 does, is he's using this concept of the Lagos that was used by Heraclitus, Plato, and Philo, the most famous three users of it. Philo is a contemporary of Jesus and a Greek philosopher, a Hebrew, a Jewish Greek philosopher, and um, kind of a mixture of Hebrew theology and and Greek philosophy. And so uh, John is purposely using the word, word or Lagos in a way they did not. 
So many, uh, if you read uh, Henry Frankfurt, and I forget his wife's name, uh, a fantastic book on ancient history called Before Philosophy. One of the things uh, that these books, this kind of book and many other kinds of books bring out is they'll bring out the similarities in the forms of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 with all the ancient, what was called mythopoeic cosmogonies of the ancient uh, civilizations. All civilizations have some story of why we're here and how we got here. And in ancient cultures, they didn't care if it was true or not historically. Uh, The Bible invented that idea, that it was important that it was historically accurate and true, because they, and uh, what they cared was the story. So when the modern idea that developed after the Civil War called the called higher criticism developed or the, the liberal modern Protestant Christianity developed. And the idea was that it's not important that it's historically accurate. It's just a story. They were actually throwing out the major concept of the entire Bible. The most important thing to any, to any biblical thinker. So um, because our faith is the only faith in the world that's ra- rated Rooted, rated, rooted in the actual events of history, in God who is outside and above history, creating history, creating the time-space continuum, creating man, and after uh, man falls, we're uh, putting into effect his eternal covenant to come and rescue man. And the facts of history are the basis of our faith. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then we might as well eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we may diet. No, die. That's my little twist. Since I'm always having to struggle with my weight. I might as well eat, drink, and be merry today because tomorrow I might have to diet. But uh, (laughs) no, uh, just twisting scripture. Um, So uh, the... um, What, what John is purposely doing is in Heraclitus and um, Plato and Philo, this Lagos principle is not necessarily a personal, eternal, triune God. And he's doing exactly what Genesis 1 does. Genesis 1 uses the same formats as you would find in Mesopotamia and among the Hittites and the Syrians and so forth, but he's actually using it for an exact opposite persons. He's kind of taking all the the myths of, of, the, uh, of the ancient world and kind of slapping them in the face and giving, using their own literature forms to say the exact opposite message. And that's exactly what John is doing when he says, in the beginning, Christ was the Lagos. He's saying, you guys are stumbling around in the dark, searching for some perfection out there, searching, searching for some perfect love, perfect beauty, perfect mountains, perfect doors, perfect concepts, and, and uh, that perfection that started all things of which this material world is uh, a corruption of and, and uh, evil of and so forth. And uh, what he's asserting is that that perfection you're looking for is Christ. And... He uh, stipulates two things that are just totally opposite of the use of the Lagos up till then, that Christ 
is eternally God, a member of the Trinity. Uh, he was with the Father, for, and all things came into being. He's the light of life and so forth. Uh, it's not some abstract principle. He's knowable. Now, um, secondly, he says the most radical thing that was ever said in, in the history of the world up to then, in verse 14, he says, this logos, this word, became flesh. Because that would be like uh, a Christian saying, uh, we want to recommend adultery and stealing to you or something to the ancient mind. They would be saying, oh my God, what are you saying? He came and dwelt in the muck of creation and of the material universe. He became a man. This is inconceivable. What's that movie? The Princess Bride. The guy's always going, inconceivable. Uh, they Inconceivable. Uh, that was the most radical statement that had ever been made up to that time. The word became flesh. And the Greek word dwelt is the word for tabernacle. He became the tabernacle of God in a human body. That's what John 1.14 is saying. Amazing. All the foreshadowings of the tabernacle of God in heaven, in the Garden of Eden, in the tabernacle of the wilderness, in Solomon's temple, in the rebuilt temple of Ezra and Nehemiah, in the rebuilt temple of Herod, in the visionary temple of Ezekiel, all these temples uh, that are for uh, uh, are actually c- come running, rushing in like a r- series of tributaries into one river into Christ, who became the tabernacle of God among men. Radical. That was never thought of in the ancient world. So we're going to look at that a little bit more in just a minute. With this idea of the Lagos is the idea of word, thought, sayings, concepts, ideas, truth. And just like in a human person, you form ideas in your heart, in your mind, and so forth, and then you decide whether to say them. We all know people who don't have much of a filtering device, and they just say whatever comes into their head, maybe times of anger or whatever reason, and we call them foolish or immature, whatever. Um, But uh, even all mature people uh, think about what comes into their mind and head and so forth, and sometimes you might modify how you're going to say it or who you're going to say it to or when you're going to say it, but sometimes we say it. And when we say it, We communicate to others, but we still have it. I didn't forget what I've told Josiah, at least not in the next three or four seconds. (laughs) But but, uh, I'm getting a little older, so I do sometimes forget. But uh, it's still part of us, but it's actually gone out from us. And what he's saying is the eternal God the omniscient one, the one, all tr- the source of all truth, all life, all creation, the one outside and above time, he who is, he who causes to be, I am that I am, has spoken, and his word is Christ. And that's why we emphasize a lot in our church that the written word of God, uh, that we really encourage you to study in various ways, biblical studies, There's four ways we encourage you to study the Word of God, biblical studies, systematic theology, biblical theology, and historical theology. I'm not going to diverge into what those mean. We've taught on those before. But 
Um, I would encourage you to make it your long-term goal to study those four ways of studying the Word of God. And um, when we study the Word of God, what we need to, what often modern people have forgotten, it's not some abstract conceptual thing. It's actually the Word of the Father. He's a person. He's, he's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is a concrete, experiential, tangible person. The, uh, the witnesses of the New Testament saw him. They heard him. They touched him. They walked with him, as we'll see today. And so constantly John is saying that God had a logos, and that logos, that is, he, he revealed himself. He spoke these, these perfect, everything perfect, who is God himself, came to earth and became dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, that's all the more I want to go into that concept because, whoa, I'm way behind. And I really wanted to do this in one week. <clears throat> we'll see. All right, so uh, since we've already looked at John 1, you'll see that I put the Greek word logos there in both. The first time I put it in both the Greek letters and what's called a transliteration. After that, I just put it in, uh, in the Greek letters. Now, 1 John 1, 1 through 3, uh, the church is actually beginning to be challenged by certain ideas that develop eventually into the first heresy the church faced uh, that, that threatened to wipe out the Christian faith and the church had to respond to, and it was called Gnosticism. Both Colossians, Paul, and John in 1 John are responding to the building ideas that developed into full-blown Gnosticism. Very relevant ideas today because much of Protestant Christianity today is steeped in Gnostic ideas. Okay, so, um, and many, many, many biblical commentators point that out. So, John says, what was from Arche, archaeology, archaic and so forth. What we heard, that, that's itself radical. We heard this Lagos speak. What we've seen, we saw him with our eyes. What we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word, the Lagos of life, and the life was manifested. Now this is, to a Gnostic, this is actually evil talk here. You're saying that he lowered himself to be born in a manger? that he wasn't born in a king's palace, that he died a cruel and agonizing death, that he got hungry in the wilderness after fasting 40 days, that he cried at Lazarus' tomb, that, he, that he's a man and that he lives in the material realm. He's manifested. We've seen, seen him, we heard him, we proclaim him to you. And we do it for a one reason only, that you might have an experiential relationship. Koinonia fellowship means not abstract theological doctrinal uh, terms, which we say, say over and over again are, the, are foundational, but your, your orthodoxy, your right beliefs, and your right worship have to lead to right practical experience with the person of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. In the, in the person of Jesus Christ as he manifests himself in the community of believers called the church. You have to experience Christ in, your, in the person next to you. You have to read, go beyond the words of Scripture and experience the living Christ. You have, to, 
You have to go beyond abstract and experience the power of his resurrection by the Holy Spirit. That's what John is saying. We write these things to you so that you can share the life of God. Wow, that was like totally uh, radical in that day. You thought abstractly about things like this. You didn't say, I've enjoyed the presence of God. Now, in Exodus 3, Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? And he says this, I am that I am. Now, this is an idea in Israel called the Tetragrammaton, uh, Y-H-W-H. Sometimes people will put it in as Yahweh or Jehovah or whatever, but it means I am that I am, he who causes to be. Uh, the M word or the B word, um, you know, whether it's kind of first person, second person, and third person all in one. I be that I be, I am that I am, I, I cause to be. Uh, he's, he's the only and ultimate reality. So when Jesus says, I am, over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, as we'll see for the rest of today's message, he is actually uh, tying himself into that concept of the Lagos or the, the Tetragrammaton. Now, let's turn over the page, backside, and look at some of the I am statements of Jesus. Um, can somebody turn that clock back like 10, 12 minutes? No. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> um, so Jesus, uh, I, I, I'm doing these in kind of a random order. Uh, John 8 are some of the most important, but so I decided to hold those to about the third group so that I could get you a little bit familiar with uh, the, the concept. Now, I don't know why or how this developed historically, but there's a very popular conception today that you hear hundreds of times that there are seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Nothing could be further from the truth. There are somewhere uh, between 20-some and 40, depending on how you look at them and how you count them. But there are lots of I am sayings of Jesus, some of which don't come through unless you look at the Greek. One of the things that you need to know to uh, get the I am sayings is that almost all uh, good philosophies, there's two good philosophies of translation. One is called literal, literal equivalence, or the King James and New King James people call it complete equivalence. ESV and New American Standard call it literal equivalence. And there's a, another philosophy of translation called dynamic equivalence, which is the philosophy of the New International Version and the, and the um, New English translation and so forth. And those uh, yield pretty good translations. And in fact, the translations we have in English today are by far the best translations of the Bible that are ever, have ever existed on this planet available to any people. You're, when you're arguing the, the, I like this one a little better than you're arguing between good, better, and best. I mean, you're arguing great and greater. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a, one of the sad ironies of history is that we have so much struggle getting people to spend time in the Bible, yet we have uh, better Bibles than anyone who's ever lived has had. Most Christians and Jews throughout the centuries would have been totally jealous of, of the fact that you have nine good translations of the Bible on your computer and on your shelves and so forth. So uh, just keep that in mind. 
as we get into these. But both those philosophies of translation try to make the English readable. So they have a thing that you need to know. Most people don't read the introduction to the philosophy of translation. You should, whatever Bible you use, take, take 10 minutes to read the introduction of why, how they translated and why. And you'll see that they often put words in italics that aren't in the Greek. And they do it to make it seem sound better to our English way of thinking in our English ears. However, they're not actually always there And actually, sometimes they cause you to lose the meaning. One thing I do when I used to use, I I use only electronic Bibles for the most part now, but when I used to use paper Bibles, I would always make a little slash through every italicized word so I could still see it in case it helped the English seem a little more workable. However, I could see what it would say without that italicized word because that's been added by the translators. And that's why so many people miss the I am sayings, because in order to make it sound right, they add in italics, he, over and over and over again throughout the Gospel of John. So just erase all those, blot them out, throw them away, whatever you want to do, cross them out, because they weren't in the Greek, and they actually hide the meaning from you. That's important. So let's get into a few of these. In John 10, Jesus says, I'm the door which is the same as saying, I'm the narrow gate that he says in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, uh, all who came before me, that is all who suggested a door or a way or a narrow way before me are actually thieves and robbers. They're not just an object of our pity. Uh, And we put that poor guy that he was so off base and so deceived. They're actually stealing the meaning of life from you. Because Jesus is the only door. He's that logos. He's that perfect door that existed from all eternity. And he's the only door you can go in through, as he says that those who go in through me will go in and out and find pasture early in the chapter. And uh, if anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and go in and out. Oh, there he is later in the chapter. Find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life. All through, starting in John 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. And later, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. A constant theme of Jesus in John is that he's the life. That's one of the I am sayings. I'm the door, and I'm the life. And I'm the door to life. You can't get into the realm called life except through the door of Jesus. Now, I have to confess to you, that when I was 17 years old and I first became a Christian and I got real excited about Jesus and I was quitting smoking marijuana and things like that, reading the Bible and getting all excited about the Lord. Uh, And I first read, enter by the narrow gate. I thought, I've got to try harder. I've got to get more things that are keeping me back out of my way. I've got to perform better. Man, I'm going to have to quit letting my mind wander so I can really focus and get in. I've got to do all these. I better make a list. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying he actually is the door. He's the narrow gate. And what you have to do is give more of yourself to him. We're gonna, one of the messages we're going to do in this part of the series is called Eight, Eight Exchanges Made at the Cross. You've got to trade in your old life for his new life. Uh, One of the saddest things about American Christianity today 
is almost all the big sellers and so forth are self-help books about how you can try harder and you can have your best life now. And that will make you lots of money and get you famous, but it won't represent the Bible at all. And it'll rob, it's a thief and a robber. Not from the people who wrote it, they get rich, but from the people who read it. Because you can't try harder and you can't squeeze, you know, down and squeeze in better. And you can't focus more. You can only give up and say, Jesus, come get me. Rescue me. I want to be like you. Like the, you know, that, remember that life commercial? I want to be like Mike. I want to be, when I grow up, I want to be like Jesus. And I can't be like Jesus. He's going to have to recreate me like Jesus. And I can do all the self-help books I want, but I'm never going to even make an inch of progress. In fact, I'm going to make negative progress. I have to let Jesus take me across the bridge. He's the good shepherd. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. No one took it from him. He laid it down. And a hireling, someone who's into it for the money or whatever, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep fleeing. He flees because he's a hired hand. He's the good shepherd. That, what he's saying is the Lagos shepherd. He's the only shepherd who's a real shepherd. And to whatever degree, God, Jesus gave apostles, prophets, shepherds, and teachers to the church. And to whatever degree they're good shepherds, it's because they're no longer them who live, but Christ who lives through them. That's why Paul says, I've been crucified to the degree that Christ is working through your shepherd. To that degree, they're a good shepherd because he's the good shepherd. And I've got no good shepherding in me. Uh, there's nothing good that dwells in me by myself. And I always want to be a better shepherd. And I want to help people more. And so I have to say, Lord, I can't rescue me and make me the shepherd you want. Recreate in me for your glory, your shepherdness, your perfect logos, the ultimate shepherd. As First Peter 5 says, he is the chief shepherd. He's writing to the shepherds among us and says, don't forget the chief shepherd. Uh and he says, I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So he's, he, uh, as, as John says in John 1.18, uh, Jesus has explained him. Jesus has manifested him. Jesus, he, you, you can know the Father by knowing Jesus because the Father's logos, his word that came forth, is the great I am, Jesus Christ. He is the I am shepherd. He's that one perfect shepherd that all men long for and need. And he will, despite our confusion and our division and everything today, when you're in union with Christ, you are, in essence, one with God and one with his people. Whether you like being in the church or not, you, when you, if you know Christ, you're in the church, and you uh, have an obligation under Christ to find a actual 
local manifestation of that to work work it out and and find and let Christ come to you through your brothers and sisters. But um, in the end, the the church will become progressively one. It will somehow be restored to unity. Now, if I ever get to write books, which I'm hoping to do, um, and I'm, you know, like down to my last year or two, and I've hopefully written 20 or 30 books, I'd love to write a book just on like speculations on how we might become more one. But I, nobody knows. It seems like a big problem, but Jesus prayed. The ultimate shepherd said that he would make us one flock with one shepherd. Every promise in the book is mine. Every jot, every tittle, every line. All right, John 8. Uh, John 15, 1 through 8. As you know, you see I put some just in bold letters because I didn't have enough room to. to John 15, Jesus says twice, I am the vine. And to a Hebrew, that was saying a lot. Because all through the Old Testament, Israel is God's vineyard. God is the vine creator, he's the vine planter, he's the vine cultivator, and you cannot live apart from be, being plugged into the vine. And out there in the logos of things, he's the one and only true vine, he's the one and only true source of life. Well, um <laughs> John 8, uh, I'm going to do one or two more and then quit. Uh, John 8, uh, maybe I'll do one more week on this. This is Hopefully this is good stuff to you, I hope. Uh, hopefully it helps us. Again, he calls himself the son of man, and uh, uh, boy, I can't really get into this that much. It's too late. Uh, I'll just say that we'll pick up with where he says in, that you, then you will know that I am. Okay, when you lift up the Son of Man, when he's crucified, buried, resurrected, that's when you'll know. And we'll talk a lot about that next week. And he goes on to say that before Abraham was, I am. And he says, unless, this, this is very important, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's why John says, he who has the Son has life, and he who doesn't have the Son does not have life. I asked Anvesh to make a little bulletin insert of three of the four most important creeds. We couldn't fit the Athanasian Creed on the half page, so we put three out of the four we wanted to put. Uh, because uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, he says, there must also be heresies among you in order that the way of the truth must be manifest, maybe made clear, manifested. If you study the first four centuries of, of church history, and we are going to start a church history class this summer based on the same model as Ray's theology class, and I'm going to lead it, be a book only half as long as Grudem's. Um, the, when you study church history, all the things that threaten the Christian faith in the first four centuries were centered in this statement, who do people say that I am? Today, the Muslims believe in a Jesus, but they don't believe in a biblical Jesus. The Mormons believe in a Jesus, but they don't believe in a biblical Jesus. There's lots of people who believe Jesus was a good guy or a good teacher or whatever, 
But Jesus is having none of that. Unless you know that I am, you will die in your sins. If you don't have the Son as the Father revealed him in Christ and in the Scriptures, you don't have life. 